Before we get to our text, I just want to uh, tell you a little bit about what I've learned uh, living in Johnson County for the past two years. First thing I've learned um, is that in Johnson County, absolutely no one knows how to drive. Zero. No one knows how to do it. And then it rains and people freak out even worse. I'm from Florida, so it rains pretty much every day. We kind of know how to drive in the rain. Johnson Countyers, I'm not really sure. They either slow down 15 minutes under the speed limit or go 15 minutes, or 15 minutes, 15 miles over the speed limit. And I just don't really get it. But you can agree with me that a lot of people don't know how to drive around here. So second thing I've learned is that some in Johnson County believe in this third world country called Missouri. Um, they, they think it's a third world country anyways. I visit it pretty often. It doesn't seem that way, but according to Johnson Countyers, it is. I've also learned, being from the South, that Kansas, my idea of Kansas, is not at all what it is. Uh, I thought Kansas was just, you know, fields of rolling wheat and uh, farmers who just want to sell you their cow, and none of you have tried to sell me your cow yet, so that's disproven. Uh, and then finally, I've learned that basketball is way too big of a deal up here, people. Come on, right? I'm from the South where football is king, especially especially college football. You guys, I'm not sure you have much to claim there, but you got the Chiefs, and I'm for them. They're pretty awesome, but basketball, not so much. Anyways, all that aside, what I've really learned about Johnson County um, is it's the busiest place I've ever lived in my life. It is the busiest place. Everyone I know is busy. We've got to figure out our calendars to make it work every time, right? I mean, and, and we have, you know, stuff with our jobs, stuff with our kids' sports or activities. We've got social engagements with people at our jobs, at our church, at wherever. We've got anything, you name it. It's on your calendar, it's on my calendar, and it's full. We're just busy. And I'll be honest, most of the time, I'm tired. Most of the time, not most of the time, some of the time, I'm even overwhelmed by how busy I am, how busy we are. I try to make it up like many of you do, you know, by resting, taking some time, maybe during the week to just kind of do nothing, you know, sit in front of the TV or look at my phone, and, and that's good. Um, but then I wake up the next morning and I have to go back to work, and I have to go back to the stressful thing that is life, my calendar. And then I, for, I got to have the very first real vacation, most of the vacation I've spent with family somewhere else, but the first real vacation I've gotten we, was this past spring with my wife. It was just her and I. We went on a cruise, and it was amazing. There wasn't a toddler chasing us around anywhere. It was amazing. And then I got off the boat on the port in New Orleans, and my phone went crazy with emails and texts and voicemails, and I went, oh, gosh. I got back from vacation, and I felt tired and overwhelmed already. I think many of us know that experience well. We know what it's like to, to after vacation or just even during the week feel busy, feel tired, feel overwhelmed. Well, today's passage, I think, gives us a look at what's necessary for our souls to find rest, our, our being, who we are 
to find rest in that. So if you will, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Chose Hebrews because uh, it's Preacher Pick'em Sunday, and I have been going through Hebrews with my discipleship group. At Blue Valley, we have discipleship groups where groups of you know three or four men or three or four women will get together, and we will read through God's Word in a year, uh, read through it together, not necessarily read through all of it, pray together, um, hold each other accountable, and, and, and discipline each other on what we're supposed to be doing as Christians, just the daily, the daily basic stuff of reading scripture and praying and memorizing scripture and other uh, disciples, things that make us disciples of Christ as well. We've been walking through Hebrews and Hebrews chapter four really, really hit me. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. But for now, let's just read verses one and two together. Here's what it says. Therefore, the promise of entering his rest still stands. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. What biblical scholars can kind of surmise and assume from reading the book of Hebrews is that it was written to an audience of Jewish Christians, and they were under persecution for their faith. Most likely, they were in Rome and were kicked out of Rome, and the, and the writer of Hebrews was reading, writing this letter to them to encourage them. And how he encourages them is he, he does by going through their history, reminding them of their heritage. And it leads to some of the most beautiful connections between the Old Testament and the person of Christ. Uh, if you've never read through the book of Hebrews, I, I encourage you just to sit and read through it in one sitting. It's truly beautiful what the writer uh, gets to. This passage is absolutely no different in that matter. Verse 1 brings us a connection between those who wandered and perished in the wilderness due to their disobedience with the current Jews at this time, which were exiles. Now, the reminder I can give there for those Jews wandering in the wilderness, if we go back all the way to the book of Exodus, many, many thousands of years before this, we look and see that Moses has led the Israelite nation out of Egypt They've crossed over the Red Sea. They are, they've received the law from the Lord. Uh, they're living in that law. They're living as those people. And they finally reach their, their destination. And that destination is the promised land, the, the land that God has promised that they would inherit, that they would come in and they would conquer. What they do is very wise. They send some spies in and, and they kind of get a lay of the land. And, and all of those spies come back and all but two say, there's absolutely no way we can do this. Have you seen the men there? They're humongous. We are but grasshoppers to them. This is suicide to even try to get into that land. And Joshua and Caleb, the two say, absolutely not. What are you talking about? God is with us. We can do what he has told us to do. We, if we're obedient to him, this will happen. Well, an argument erupts into a riot, really. And then the people who are not foregoing into the promised land uh, basically try to kill Moses, try to kill Joshua, try to kill the leaders so that they can take the people and go back to Egypt where they think it was better. Um, God stops that. And now, in the midst of that, that craziness, God curses the Israel to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Years. And essentially what that does is the entire generation that argued with God, that argued with Moses about going into the promised land, dies off. 
in the wilderness. Uh, and that's what the, the writer of Hebrews is getting at when he, he tells them they were not united by faith with those who listened. Why would he bring that up? Well, it's certainly not to, to make the remnant of Israel that's, that he's writing to compare to this Israel that is not listening. He said, no, you're believers. But take this as a warning. Look at your history. Look back at your heritage. Look how they did not listen to God. See their unbelief. See their lack of rest. They never entered the promised land. Look at how their lack of faith led them to neglect the good news of the presence of God. Look at how they ignored the leaders appointed by God to lead them. Show them his voice. Avoid that fate. Do not become like them. Continue in belief. Rather, follow Jesus. He goes on in verse 3 to say this. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest the way to avoid the fate of these Israelites that the author of Hebrews is telling us is to believe. It's simple. The way to enter rest is to believe. It's been this way since the foundation of the world. God made it to be this way. God, or the author of Hebrews, goes back even further in Israelite history, goes back to even creation. This is the rest that humanity has been invited to join in since creation. Let's look at the rest that God had, the rest that God enjoyed after creating the heavens and the earth. There's something important we need to understand about that rest, though often we, we get in our minds that God needed rest, and that's not at all. It was not a, a, a rest out of necessity. God was not tired after creating after a God-sized work, he did not need a God-sized nap. Rather, it was a, a rest of enjoyment. God, who, who made a creation to glorify him in specific ways, in a way that defines the individual purpose of each part of creation, enjoyed that creation. The best way I've, I've come to understand it, because it's really hard to wrap your mind around that, uh, is that God's rest did not mean inactivity. It meant true purpose. It didn't mean that, that he took a break. In fact, he was still God, which means he can't take a break. And the best way I've kind of come to visualize it, this is imperfect, but it's almost as if God was a master painter and he painted a masterpiece and he stepped back and he said, this is good. This is good. This has purpose. This is doing exactly what I designed it to do. Be beautiful. Unfortunately, the story of creation didn't end there. Unfortunately, we chose our own purposes. 
not God's. Unfortunately, we chose to meet our own desires and not God's purposes for us. And basically the rest of the Old Testament is just showing us over and over and over and over and over again that humanity continues to choose its own purposes rather than God's. And this is key, that the only way humanity can get back to their purpose, get back to the rest that God invited them to in creation is through his direct intervention in creation. By the time that the letter of Hebrews was written, that intervention had happened, and his name was Jesus. Let's read on. Verse 6. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he, points, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, just as God did from his. As we see, there's one who was promised. Joshua wasn't that one. They truly did come into the promised land after the 40 years of wandering. God gave them the victory over insurmountable odds over and over and over and over again because of their faith. God delivered on his promises, giving them land. Yet, at the end of all of that, even Joshua had to say, choose this day whom you're going to serve. And the Israelites, as we know, did not choose the Lord, did not choose rest. Yet, the one who was promised came. The good news came. And the good news is that that rest that we had in creation, although not quite yet is still available today. We'll get there when we get to heaven. It'll be amazing. But God even promises us rest today. And, and the day that is appointed, as he said, is today. There, there's no reason to wait. Do not harden your hearts. Enter God's rest today. Believe today is what the writer of Hebrews is asking these people to do, what he's asking us to do. Christ has made it available for you to have rest. It will never come from the law. It will never come from your effort. It only comes from the one able to give us Sabbath rest, Jesus. And since that is true, what, that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get us to understand, he urges on in verse 11 through 13. Here's what it says. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may befall may fall by the same sort of disobedience for the word of god is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 
Since Christ did a work for us on the cross through the resurrection, we can enter his rest. And we would be foolish not to. Christ has done everything. We lack nothing in him. We have a Savior who sees us, who sees our shortcomings, who sees our deficiencies, who sees everything wrong about us, and yet he loves us enough to make us holy. Without this holiness, the passage states clearly where we are. We're subject to the word of God, which leaves nothing up for grabs. Every bit of our essence as human beings is pierced by this word. There isn't a thought or a word that isn't discerned by it. Every bit of who we are and what we are is revealed through the word of God. Word of God reveals that we're sinners, unholy, separated from God. It reveals that all of our efforts to be good or holy are futile unless we have the help of God. It's funny because we we often quote that passage, the Bible is a two-edged sword, in a positive light. We we love that passage, but the, the writer of Hebrews didn't mean it positively. In fact, said, this is what you're up against. This is what everyone is up against. Hearkening back to him saying, today, don't harden your hearts. Believe. And you can experience the Lord. But truly, every sin and every action that you and I commit is judged by an eternal an omnipotent God. And it's within that reality that we in the world have to find rest. Let that sink in for a moment. Whether you clearly or consciously know that I'm going to be judged by the Lord or not, you know that it's tough to find rest. You know that something is incomplete in your life. You know something is missing. And the world tells us to seek out what is missing in many ways. It tells us to seek out pleasure in whatever way benefits you, but that's not working. Take a look around. We live in an era of unprecedented convenience and comfort. You want it, go to Amazon and you can get it. I want Mexican food today. Take your pick. Johnson County has about 600 mediocre Mexican restaurants. All right. Go get some Mexican. We, we can do what we want when we want it, and we can have what we want when we want it. That's not something that the history of the world has had much of. Yet, mental health continues to decline. People's search for purpose and identity end in disappointment at best, or at worst, mental health crisis. The lack of of true rest in our world is the cause of unrest and injustice across the globe. The world is not at rest. Turn on the news and you can find that out quickly. So what is the answer? The answer is to find true rest. But we can only enter true rest when we find our identity 
in Christ. Identity in Christ is something that the church has been proclaiming for as long as I can remember. I've grown up in church. I was basically sitting where you are, basically out of the womb. I didn't go to the nursery. For some reason, my parents thought that was a good idea. But I sat here. I, I grew up listening to the preacher, listening to the music. And identity in Christ pretty much came up every Sunday morning, every Wednesday night, every Bible study, every what you name it, it came up. Are we living it out, though? I, I'm afraid the world looks at the church today and, and sees a group of people that live a compartmentalized religious life. It kind of just nominally trusts in the so-called son of God. When it's time for church, I mean, I, I'm, I'm guilty of this. We bring our niceness and our Bible knowledge and we leave feeling encouraged or maybe a little convicted on how we should live our lives Then we get to work and somehow Jesus goes out the window. Sure, if anybody asks, we believe in God and we call ourselves Christians. After all, we vote for the right things and we don't do things that are morally reprehensible. In reality, Jesus is our moral cheerleader. There to pat us on the back when we do something we know he'd be proud of. Or maybe we see God as an experience where we come to church and we have an emotional response to a a beautiful truth found in God's word. And that makes us feel good on the inside. We get our Jesus in on Sunday. We can do what we want Monday through Saturday. Jesus is an attraction at a theme park we call church where we get our emotional fix that we pray lasts through the week. No matter where you find yourself there, Jesus is only a part of our lives. We take him out when we need him. He's not the daily transformative power that the Bible says he is. He's not the lens by which we navigate this world. The problem is when we live in either of those spectrums, we're just like the world. And we will never find true rest. We'll reach for it. We'll grab out for it. We'll we'll see it in front of us, but we will never get it. If true rest is finding the purpose for which we are created and then living in that purpose, where else would we find it but Jesus? Where else would we find it but actually a daily commitment to him, a daily identity check in him? If Christ is just our moral cheerleader, we constantly are looking for the pat on the back that we'll never really get. And that's just a life of checks and balances, which is definitely not restful. If Jesus is just an attraction that gives us an emotional high, I promise something will come along that's way more attractive, that promises fulfillment, and it won't deliver. And in either end, we'll end up thinking, There must be more to life than this. There's got to be something more. It's only when our true identities are found in Christ that we find our purpose.
That's why in student ministry, we stress identity because it's the thing that you have to have right. I, I stress about sending high schoolers into college if their identity isn't found in Christ. We, we talk about how that generation loses faith or if it had any to begin with. It's a problem rooted in their identity. It's a problem rooted in who Christ is. We, we focus on simple things in student ministry for that reason because their identity is, in Christ is simple, but it is so profound. It is so life-changing, so life-giving. It's where true purpose and true rest lie. And if, if Christ is our identity, we will try and find true rest in him, which leads us to our second point. We only find rest when we find our Sabbath in Christ. Sabbath is a bit of a loaded term, kind of a churchy word, so let's unpack it. It's one of the Ten Commandments is to keep the Sabbath day holy, right? For ancient Israel, back in Moses' day, this meant setting aside a specific day for the Lord to rest from their work. It focused on the character of God. The writer of Hebrews is super aware of this tradition. He knows exactly what it's all about, but he, he wants his readers to understand something essential about that Sabbath rest. The Sabbath was meant to signify the rest that was present in creation, getting back to that rest that God took. Every time the Israelites experienced Sabbath rest, it was uh, a proclamation of their purpose in their creator God and how he made all things good. Every time they celebrated the Sabbath, it was celebrating how God made everything so good and how we can rest in that fact that we have purpose. In Christ, however, we experience Sabbath rest through salvation. And I think the writer of Hebrews is trying to get us to this conclusion because this means that our Sabbath isn't allotted for a, a specific day or time. Rather, we actually have Sabbath rest every day through the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's amazing. It's not, we don't have to wait to find our rest in the Lord. We have it available every day in the character of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Think, think, amen. Think of how much the world could change if people truly lived in that rest. Just go small. Think of how Johnson County could change if people had their identities in Christ and truly rested in him. That would be amazing. That would change everything, which just happens to be God's purpose anyways. Now hear me out. There are times as believers that we need to get away, right? I, I loved it. I mean, we, we went to Mexico, my wife and I, with no toddler. It was amazing, right? And it was awesome time to spend with the Lord together. I was still in my Bible every day on, on those days because I wanted to experience him even on vacation. We need times to get away. We need times where we can go and spend a weekend in a cabin alone where nobody's talking to us. 
where we can sit in solitude and experience the Lord. It's healthy for us. However, I believe that if we're not careful, we end up calling rest what isn't rest. We end up really calling rest what truly is a distraction. If you're like me, I enjoy watching football on TV. I enjoy watching Netflix, whatever. That can be distracting. You can enjoy that in the Lord, but it can very easily become a distraction. There's a way to rest that honors the Lord and it is found in him. Rest is God honoring when we're thankful for what he's given us and when we use the time as an act of worship for him. Often, though, our rest can become time that we don't allow God in on. It, it's then where we say, you know, God, this is kind of my time. I don't really want to deal with you. I kind of want to forget about everything, in fact, that our rest becomes idolatry. Our rest becomes an idol that we need when truly everything that we need is right in front of us in Jesus How do we keep that from happening? How do we keep our rest God-honoring? Well, we keep our identity in Christ. When we rest, it should be done in him because there's nothing better than life found in Christ. And that puts my time for rest and relaxation into perspective. Is your rest productive for worship? Also, you take time for rest. You go back to Johnson County is the busiest place I've ever lived. Many of you have calendars that are so chock full that I don't know if God has any part in it. You, again, you believe in Jesus. You believe in God, absolutely. But where is he daily in your life? Is your life so full that you're missing God? We've got three students in student ministry um, who really, really changed my view on this passage. And it's not because they were, hey, look at this. It was through their life. Um, three of them who all had really, really good high school careers in whatever they were doing, uh, extracurriculars. One's a runner, one was a ballerina, one was a gymnast. And they're all ridiculously good at it. Like I could see them being those things when they grew up or extremely good at them. Every single one of them has had an injury this summer where they can't do it anymore. Every single one of them. One of them, at the Colorado mission trip, I sat down with her and I asked, I said, hey, how's, how's your walk with the Lord going? Because I knew this injury was really weighing heavy on her. And she said, you know, I was mad that God didn't allow me to do what I wanted to do. Uh, mad for a long time, but now I see that the Lord used this to draw my attention to him. Really, the Lord used it, she said, really the Lord used an injury to show me that that time was idolatry before God. That my identity was being found in that and not Jesus, not the Lord. There's a few moments in student ministry where you're just like, whoa, 
that just came out. That was amazing. You're like in 11th grade. How did you come up with that, you know? But that's how the Lord works. She, he showed this girl that she didn't have time for him. And so he made time. And now she's so thankful for that. I learned a lot just from that testimony, just from reading Romans, or Romans, Hebrews 4. Thinking about how I rest, how I've been convicted on, how much time do I make for the Lord? And is my rest truly in him? Is rest in your identity in Christ a daily part of your life? Do you encourage it in your children? Do you encourage it in your spouse? Or is your calendar so full of things that distract you from a life of worship and purpose? Is Christ your aim? Where does your purpose lie? Let's end with a passage in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, we're going to read from 25 to the end, and it says this. The time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The writer of Hebrews wrote this chapter. I like to believe that he had these words in mind. I like to believe that he was hearkening back to the teachings of Jesus, where Jesus invites us all to partake in a rest that only he can give.